You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Uh, Good evening. My name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you as well. We are looking at the patriarchs, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And these, uh, these folks are all the, um, they are the tip of the spear of the kingdom of God, which is coming into the world that God has created a new uh, nation, Israel, the nation of Israel. And these people in this story are literally the nation of Israel. And God will bring this kingdom through the nation of Israel. From them will come the Messiah who will uh, enter into this evil empire that we live in and begin this revolution. Uh, This rebel army is created here uh, that will rescue the entire world. So these are the very origins. This is the genesis of of that kingdom of God uh, right here in the story. And we've seen with both in Abraham's family and Isaac's family and Jacob's family, it's like a dumpster fire everywhere. And the entire beginning of the kingdom is just... uh, full of uh, dysfunction, of relationships like this. Uh, All these things we see in this passage, there's so much strife. um, And this, uh, Joseph here, who was kind of the the hero of the Joseph story, uh, we saw last week that he was this arrogant tattletale. He was spoiled by his father. Uh, He hated, um, he was hated by his brothers. He's very foolish and, and childish. And his brothers, we saw last week, they captured him. Uh, they sold him into slavery, and uh, they told Jacob that he was dead. And so uh, we didn't look at this, but between last week and this week, through this bizarre set of circumstances, um, including going to prison for three years, um, Joseph becomes like the, the vice president or the prime minister of Egypt. He becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt because he predicted this famine would come across the whole world because he could interpret the dream of the Pharaoh. So he predicted a famine would come. And then the Pharaoh was so impressed by him that he put Joseph in charge of famine relief. And so for years, um, Joseph has been uh, handing out grain to all the people from the neighboring nations who were coming because this massive famine has spread across the world. And he knew, I'm sure he knew that his brothers would come because he knew that they would need grain too. And so I imagine that he's been thinking up um, this plan for when they appeared. Uh, It says in verse 1, when Jacob learned there was grain in Egypt, he said, why do you look at one another? Go do something, which is very typical of Jacob. He he clearly does not like these uh, these sons. He loves Joseph, he loves Benjamin, and that's about it. Uh, But he says, uh, what are you doing standing there looking at each other? Go do something. And so you you see even there the irritation between the father and these children. Uh, And so the brothers go down to Egypt, and they come before Joseph, the brother they try to kill face to face, but it says in verse eight, they did not recognize him because this, uh, this was, uh, he was 17 when they tried to kill him and now he's 39. 
That's what most scholars say. So uh, they, he also is dressed in the kind of the garb of the Egyptian prime minister, uh, which would have been, it would have had that kind of serpent-like you know, headdress. <clears throat> he would have the Egyptian clothes. If you've seen the Prince of Egypt, uh, you know what they were dressed like. So um, they didn't recognize him. And he, he initiates this elaborate process uh, where he first of all exposes them. And that's the man they want to look at, the way that God brings the truth out of us. The way that Joseph uh, brings the truth out of his brothers. That's the first thing. Uh, he could have just immediately showed them who he was. He could have said, hey, I'm, it's Joseph. I'm so, so glad to see you. Or he could have killed them immediately, which would have been just. But he doesn't do any of those things. He, he begins to draw out the truth. He wants to expose them because exposure is the only way we can be healed. So that's the first point. And then the second point briefly after that is that he, he reconciles with them. So first of all, the <clears throat> exposure to the truth. Uh, it says uh, in verse 7 again, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. And you can imagine, although he may have been waiting for this, uh, you can imagine just <clears throat> what it would feel like to see those brothers again after all those years. The ones who had tried to kill him, who hated him, and who he surely had spent years and years resenting. But somewhere along the way, um, that anger, that bitterness has, has drained away. And he, he remembers a dream, it says in verse 9. He remembers that dream he had long ago where he saw in this dream that his brothers would bow down to him. And uh, he remembered that dream now. <clears throat> and so he joins in what God is doing here. He, he, he sees that this is a fulfillment of God's purposes. And one of, the main, one of the main overarching themes of the story of Joseph is providence. That God is, God is in charge of every, every detail. That God is a God of providence. And so... Uh, Joseph joins in what God is doing now that he sees that the dream is being fulfilled. And what he does is he begins to interrogate them roughly. And I thought of Columbo. That's probably not a good example. Or Matlock or somebody who's like really aggressive. I think about like one of those light bulbs in a dark room that's over this little desk and the person's on the other side of the desk and just a really vicious interrogator. Um, that's, but that's what's going on in verse 7. He treated them like strangers. He spoke roughly to them. You can imagine them just peppering them with questions. You know, who are you? Where did you come from, verse 7? And he even tries this ploy that a lot of interrogators try where he tries to confuse them. And three times he tells them, you're spies. Uh, verse 9, your spies come to steal state secrets. That's what it means to spy upon the nakedness of the land. That means that he's saying they've come down uh, to do espionage and to find out secrets of Egypt and take them back uh, to Israel to use them against the Egyptians. So he says in verse 9, you're, you're spies who've come to steal state secrets. And then in verse 10, they say, no, we're, we're just a bunch of brothers. We've never been spies. And then in verse 12, no, you're spies and you're here to spy on us. And then on and on, he, he will not relent until finally the truth comes out. And I imagine they're just getting more and more flustered and anxious until finally they kind of begin to spill the beans, so to speak. And in verse 13, they finally admit to him, uh, we're 12 brothers. Uh, there's, a, there's a youngest brother back home. And then there's another brother, and he is no more. And this is where I think that you can imagine just Joseph, just it would be like a, a dagger uh, plunged into him as he hears them speak about this brother who is no more. Because that, of course, is him. He's also hearing about Benjamin. And he's also realizing <clears throat> that they have told uh, their dad a lie. Um, they, they have 
they are acting, they're still, they're still living this lie that Joseph's dead. So they've clearly told Jacob that he's dead. So now Joseph knows that, that his dad thinks he's dead. And, um, and he, he knows they have not taken responsibility for it because he says one of them is no more, which is just an incredibly cowardly way of deflecting the truth. They killed that one, but they just say one of them is no more. No responsibility at all. And so what he does is um, he puts them in prison for three days. He puts them in prison. He spoke roughly to them. He accused them of being spies, and now he puts them in prison. And he's doing this to drive them to the truth. Okay, this is, um, this is an order for the truth to come out. If you look in the passage again and again and again, it talks about honesty and truth. And in verse 21, he says, In truth, the brothers say, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. This is where he's really pushed them to a final confession. Because at this point, they don't even know that he can understand them because they, they speak in Hebrew. And they don't know that he can understand Hebrew. So they begin to talk to one another and they finally confess. Uh, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And I don't know if they ever said that to one another. You know, they might not have ever admitted that to themselves. But now they're finally beginning to open up because of the way that Joseph has... <clears throat> spoken roughly to them, accused them of being spies, put them in prison. This is all to expose the truth, to have the truth come out. And then in verse 22, you really see, and this is where you can really tell somebody's finally owning the truth about themselves. It says, uh, now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And what they're saying is we understand that we are being punished. Uh, we understand that we are now bearing the just consequences of God on our lives. And if you really want to know if you've confessed, if you've gotten to the, really, the bedrock of a confession, and if you've really been exposed, it's when you say something like that, that we are, now I am receiving a reckoning for my deeds, that I am, I am now <clears throat> reaping the whirlwind, that you know, uh, what goes around comes around, and uh, you know, the bed that I made in, I'm ha having to lie in now. And so uh, now he really understands <clears throat> that they're owning their sin. And again, this is not revenge. This is not revenge. He's not um, the least bit bitter. In fact, it says in verse 24, when he, when he hears them um, confess this, he turns away from them. And he's probably been having a hard time holding it back, but he turns away from them. He goes behind some kind of curtain or something like that, and he just breaks down in tears. I mean, just try to imagine that in a movie. He's, he's having this conversation. He's his face is probably getting redder and redder, and there's just emotion building up. And finally, when they confess the truth, he can't stand it anymore. He has to go back behind the curtain and just begins to weep. And who knows how long he's back there, weeping. But I'll say, vengeance and tears, are they are mutually exclusive things. Uh, when you begin to harden your heart with vengeance towards someone who's done a, a great wrong to you, uh, you're not gonna be weeping. Payback uh, and grief are the opposite. And, and anger is a much easier emotion to feel than grief. And a lot of times when we're really grieving and mourning, we just, we just turn to anger. And, and in this case, he is weeping because he is grieving what happened to him. He's not demanding justice. Justice would be, you know, 11 years in slavery for each one of them, two years in prison, and possibly death. That's not what he wants. He has no interest in justice. He, he just wants them to come clean because only then can they be healed. In fact, until they get specific about what they did, they can't be healed. This is a really important principle of, 
of exposure or confession. In verse 21, we actually learn more about what happened back in that pit when they threw him in the pit. We learn in verse 21 that they, um, they threw him in the pit while he was begging for mercy. You know, I think of him like a cat kind of trying to hold out its, you know, its four claws when you throw it into the, the tub. If you've done that before, try to throw your cat in a bathtub and they spread out and Joseph's just desperately trying to cling to some part of that pit and begging for mercy. In verse 21, they say to each other, again, in Hebrew, not knowing you can hear them, we saw the distress of his soul. He begged us and we didn't listen. They get really specific. They've never had this conversation before. And now uh, they're getting extremely specific. And this is where things get really real. If you really want to know if you've gotten to the truth of what you've done, you've got to get specific. So uh, I will say to my wife, um, you know, I'm so sorry, Margie, that I, I hurt your feelings yesterday or this morning. And she'll say, I forgive you, but could you tell me more? Can you get more specific? And I will say something like, well, I was really irritable. I, I, um, I was aggravated with you. I wasn't mad, but I was, I was irritable. I was kind of aggravated. And she'll say, that's better. But um, could you say exactly what you actually did? And then I'll say something like, well, I raised my voice. And I said, why are you always late? And then she'll say, and then what were you thinking about uh, when you said that? And I'll say, I was thinking uh, she cares way more about getting stuff done for herself than about me and making me look bad because I hate being late and looking bad. And only at that point am I actually hitting down to ground zero. And, and only then do I actually, the more detail you give, the more it will hurt and the more healing you will find. And this goes for counseling too. If you're in counseling, uh, until you get really specific about the event that occurred, and I'm talking about down to the details, down to what you saw, what you felt, uh, you're not gonna find the kind of healing that you need to find. Because only then do you hit the granite bedrock. And that was Joseph's goal all along. In verse 16, he says, to see whether there is truth in you. Is there truth in you? And that's what, that's what God is asking us tonight is, is there truth in us? Or have we owned what we've done? Um, are the confessions we make mostly for other people or to look uh, self-effacing or to look humble? Or are they actually... Are they actually face-to-face? -face? Are they about God? Are they actually for an audience of one? Um, are, are the confessions we make just because against you and you only have I sinned, as David says about God in Psalm 51, against you and you only, an audience of one? That, that is the key to Joseph's transformation, which we don't see, but, but when he says, I fear God in verse 18, I think what, what he's saying is that I know my life is evaluated by God alone. And, and I fear God means I see I see myself through his eyes. And I know that he sees everything I do. And I stand naked before him. Because somewhere in those two years in that Egyptian prison when Joseph was in prison, uh, I think he started to see his arrogance. I think he started to see his childishness, that he wanted to be like a little boy, that he wanted to be the favorite. And I think he started to see that he was taking that gift that God gave him of dreams, of interpreting dreams, and he was just flaunting it like it was for him. And I think he came to this conclusion, I, I had to be sold into slavery. I, I had to be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And I had to be thrown in prison and lied to. This is all stuff 
that had to happen to get me out of where I was. And that's what it means to live before the fear of God, is seeing God's fingerprints all over your story as necessary parts of your story to get you where he's got to get you. This is what uh, Tim Keller says, preacher that I love. He says that every one of us has a kind of sharp unpleasantness where God has to bring the external brokenness of the world into a relationship with our internal brokenness in just the right way, at just the right time, and in just the right proportion to make something great of us. God has to take the external brokenness of the world and match that with our internal brokenness in just the right way, in just the right time, with just the right proportion to change us, to heal us. And that's what's going on here. Uh, that's the first point, is exposure. Uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth will sh- set you free. And, and that means that uh, we've got to get graphic and detailed and take responsibility for our lives. And until that happens, you can't be reconciled. Again, if Joseph had just uh, immediately told them who he was, that would, have been, that would not have been real peacemaking. That would have been peace faking. That would have been cheap peace. That would not, not have been the real thing. Um, to have reconciliation, which is my second point, you have to have truth. You've got to own the truth to find real reconciliation. So if you're right now in conflict with someone and you want deep reconciliation, the, the truth has to come out. They've got to speak the truth and you've got to speak the truth about what you've done or there can be no reconciliation. And so that's now the second point. All of that exposure that he just did was to create reconciliation. So um, he knows the whole family's got to be involved, right? He, he knows that just having those brothers down there is not enough. And he's got to get Benjamin down. He's got to get Jacob eventually to come down. They've all got to be there for the reconciliation to happen. So um, what he does is he says in verse 15, okay, I'm going I'm to give you a test to see, the, to see if you're really telling me the truth about this brother that you have, this younger brother. Uh, I want you to go get him and bring him back down here. And, and that's what they do. They go up there to get Benjamin. And that's when they find that in their sacks there is the, uh, the money. They never actually paid money for the grain. And so they're getting nervous that when they go back down there, it's going to be really bad because they're going to say, you cheated me. You know, that Joseph's going to say, you cheated me. You didn't pay me. So he's, he's making them more anxious. He's doing all this to build up the anxiety for the reconciliation. But that's why he puts the money back in their sacks. So they get to their dad. Uh, that's a 500-mile trip. That's an 11-day trip. They get up to their dad in Israel uh, who is acting like a 90-year-old infant. He's just throwing a tantrum. And he says in verse 36, You've bereaved me of all my children. Of course, they're standing there. But he's saying, you're not even really my children. You don't mean anything to me. He says, you've bereaved me of all my children. And Benjamin is the only one I have left in verse 38. In other words, you're not, I don't care about you. He's the only one that really matters to me. So there's, there's Jacob uh, playing favorites again, his old self. He still hasn't been fully healed. And this goes on and on for months. Jacob will not let them go back down. He says, you're not taking Benjamin down there. He's all I've got left. And so uh, Jacob allows him, forces him to stay up in Israel for months and months until finally they begin to starve. And they say, we've got to go back down there or we're going to all die. And so they go back down there. And we're getting into next week's sermon. But when they, when they get down there, uh, there is 
there is their brother, Simeon, who's been in prison the whole time. He's kind of held as collateral. In verse 19, it says, let one of your brothers remain confined. So in other words, to make sure that they would come back with Benjamin, Joseph kept Simeon down there. And there's Simeon, you know, after months, just sitting in that prison in chains, rotting there in that prison. And to achieve the full reconciliation that Joseph's shooting for, um, they've got to see that there's been massive relational damage done, that, that a price has to be paid, that the, the, sh- the family has been shattered by what they did. When they did that to Joseph, it obliterated something forever priceless to this family. It broke them up. And so they've got to, to, to have reconciliation, you've got to see the price uh, that needs to be paid. And, and so they, they come down there, and it says in verse uh, 24 that, that, that he took Simeon and he bound them before their eyes. I think the reason that he, that he actually bound them, Simeon, before their eyes is so that they would see, uh, we've done this before. This is not the first brother that we have bound and, and put in a kind of a prison. And that when they saw Simeon there, that they would see uh, the price that had to be paid to create reconciliation. Uh, that, that they would see that Simeon, in a sense, had to take their place and had to bear the cost for what they've done. And I think to have reconciliation with God, we've got to realize that there's a, there's a huge price that needs to be paid. God can't just say, I forgive you, don't worry about it. You know, Jesus could have come down and said, I forgive you all, don't worry about it. Uh, all, is, all is forgotten, we're good now. And uh, just had a big party, everybody come over. But he didn't do that. Uh, he had to, the, the price had to be paid. For the relational damage that human beings have done uh, to each other, to the planet, to God, there was this price that had to be paid. And just as they saw... Uh, Simeon bound that that let them go free and they saw him imprisoned so at this table we see uh, our Lord and as we take this meal and, and we receive the reconciliation we've got to realize what was done to this man Remember, we love these rascals.